Welcome to the Soccer Podcast, where we talk soccer in Delaware, soccer in the rest of the world, and everything in between. My name is Sebastian, and this week I'm joined here by Dwayne from a remote location. Yeah, remote location in the remote, I'm in a remote area. Remote area. Yeah. With uh, service. With service. That's good, because depending on where you are in a remote area or where you live in Delaware, it might not be It might not be with service. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a plug in there for our interview. Do you know where Ted Stevens is from? Ted's, who's Ted Stevens? Oh, man. You got to go back and listen to the interview. Am I, oh, um, no, I don't. From a remote, he's from a remote state. Oh, I now I know who you're talking about. Yes. Now, okay. Yes. Ted Stevens. Yes. Uh, do I know where he's from? From Alaska? a remote state. Alaska? There you go. Yeah. There's a piece okay. of trivia for you right there. There, there it is. Yeah. Uh, also, I have the a, airport. The airport's named after him. I got a the Ted Stevens Alaska National Airport. Something like okay. that. All right. Um, yeah, we do have an interview. I have I have one piece of trivia question for you. Uh, in out of the how many how many uh, associations, the state associations, does Delaware have as a state in general from a soccer standpoint? Uh, how many associate like how many like organizations within the soccer association yeah from dysa would be like one yes and then we would have an adult association that would be two what's your Um, guess what's your guess guess? i'm gonna say two we have two because i don't i was gonna say i don't think we really dabble into like football or no we have we have the we have dysa which is delaware youth soccer association and then the delaware soccer association as well so we do have two, uh, which which we we will get the into. Delaware Dogs is coming up next. <laughs> we'll get into our <laughs> interview uh, here in a second, but um, I do want to bring up one update piece of information that we haven't discussed in the podcast, uh, but it's been officially announced uh, this past week that I feel like is is important that we talk about it. It's something. It's been a big topic of conversation for us in in our, on our podcast, and we're not going to dive super deep into all the details of it. But uh, we have come to a decision. You and I have come to a decision that um, that this year we're we're not going to have a diamonds team. Uh, so Delaware Diamonds are taking a year off, um, and hopefully twenty twenty five will be will be a potentially a return for it. Uh, the Cliff Notes version of it is uh, we couldn't find a club that wanted to um, sponsor it and and take on the 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 logistical. Um, aspect of it, which which is more than than Dwayne and I could handle, as me and Dwayne individually. Um, so we we've always needed a little bit of support from that standpoint. Outside of the fact that Dwayne and I have run pretty much every aspect of the team, um, but there's a there's a bigger component to it. There's a financial component to to running the team that we run. Um, so, um, well, we'll be back. We'll be back. We'll have, take time. Take the next year to really, yeah, you know, really put it together. We don't want to. The other thing we didn't want to do is kind of piecemeal it together and, and make changes on the fly. We want to make sure it's a structured environment. We had all the supports there. So, but we'll be we also, Yeah. And we also didn't want to put the, put that burden on the players either, which, which, which we've always tried to minimize that component to it. And into the fact that, you know, you and I have, have coached this team for three years without, um, we've had other coaches along the way, but but you and I have been the two coaches that have been there for from year one. Shout out to OG goalkeeper coach Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but but we've but we've you and I have never taken a, a dime out of out of coaching um coaching in the diamonds. It's always been something that we've done because we felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, coming out of COVID, and then ultimately for the two years after that, it was something that we felt just strongly about. Um, so we continued to do it. Um, but unfortunately, this year we we're not going to be able to 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 do it, which is which is disappointing. But at the same time, I think it does. You know, and you putting this out, I think it gives us a an opportunity to to reevaluate and figure out exactly how we make it successful in in you know where where is the right home for the diamonds because you and I have always believed that this ha- this this should never really be a standalone thing this should always be a part of a club's pathway um on the on the or group. multiple clubs i mean not just a club but just, yeah yeah yeah, it, yeah it, it's a, an, ex, it's an extension it's a for the players it's an extension for them to better themselves where they're playing um you know college soccer looking to prepare themselves to be college soccer players and to be able to play at the highest level during the summer yeah. i mean yeah i mean just looking at the young players that came up through the ranks that start off the high school players you know um they're very successful in their college seasons as they in their first season so, yeah. so i mean listen unfortunately in america soccer isn't free you got to pay to play and um, just looking at all the expenses and things that go into it, just wasn't feasible this year. But hey, listen, we'll be back and and we'll have a we'll have a strategic plan to make sure we we're still offering good level of soccer for the players to 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 come back fit and be prepared for their their um, fall seasons when they go to school yeah. or their spring seasons when they go back to high school or their high level club seasons. For sure, um, wherever the right. pathway takes you. Yeah, a hundred percent. All right, well, let's dive into our interview, uh, which which I think is is extremely um, informational. This is we talk about always trying to learn something from from every interview that we that we do. Well, this is one interview that we for sure learned a lot. We got an education for sure. You gonna learn when they say you gonna learn today? Yeah, definitely gonna learn today. So, uh, so yeah, let's, gonna let's you gonna learn on your ride to work if you're listening on your way to work. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, go, let's go right into it. Uh, Duane, uh, I don't, this might be one of the most interesting interviews that we have lined up, uh, hope luckily set up by, or the connection came from the one guy that refuses to be on the podcast, uh, famously known for not ever wanting to be on our podcast yet very supportive of our podcast. Uh, so big shout out to Chad Reed for, for the connection here, but, uh, with us today, we have Nathan Goldberg Cranier. Uh, Nathan is the vice president candidate for U.S. soccer, uh, also the former uh, chief soccer officer and also assistant GM for Gotham FC, uh, who are the reigning NWSL champions. Uh, so that's that's awesome. But uh, but Nathan, how you doing? How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here uh, and talk a little bit more about the VP election and, and the stuff that I've done in the soccer world. So yeah, more of your listeners kind of get a sense of what goes into U.S. soccer's governance. I think that's something that we could do better at, at explaining. So casual soccer fans know who is, who is making decisions and how decisions are made that impact soccer at every level in this country. So excited to have this conversation. No, for well, sure. it's not I mean, just, it's not just our listeners. Go ahead, 
because you're gonna you're gonna repost this and put this on your social media and blast this out. So your Correct. listeners, we want to put this out to your people as well to help grow our audience. So it's a for sure. It's a one-two connection. Um, this might be the first time that I think we've been involved in a an election to a certain extent, uh, which is kind of interesting because uh, at least from like a conversation standpoint. So I I think that's really cool. Yeah, we, we've we've gone into every avenue in soccer i think except for like i guess you can call it politics i don't know that it's really i mean i guess it is politics but like soccer there's multiple politics. candidates yeah i mean it's an election politics i mean i guess they do govern soccer right so yeah it is it's governance is what i like to call it um this is how the the sport is governed in the u.s and that has pretty big implications for well, everyone who plays it well, can you tell us, I mean, just to dive in, let's talk about governance. What's what's the VP role? Like, if, you know, if you're elected, what is the VP role going to entail? What are you going to be doing? What's, you know, what's the big, what are the big things that the people now down at the, yeah. at like the so, grassroots level? So I think even before jumping into that, I think giving an overview of how the election works. Yeah, that'd be great. It really helps people kind of place themselves in the right context. Because... So you- Soccer. I just I want to point that out that we normally look at U.S. soccer as just like you know the men's national team, the women's national team, and everything that comes along with it. But it's but it's everything. It's over. It's it's a very much bigger, broader umbrella that houses adult associations, things like that. So yeah, go ahead, take it away. Yeah, it's that. So the national teams are the tip of the iceberg. So at its core, U.S. soccer is the national governing body of soccer in the United States. Every Olympic sport has their national governing body. You have USA Rugby, USA Tennis, USA Track and Field. U.S. Soccer is the governing body of soccer. And it is a membership-based organization. So there are members of U.S. Soccer that comprise the organization. And there are four and a half, let's say, big membership categories. So the biggest membership category in terms of voting percentage within the federation is the athletes council and the athletes council comes from a federal law called the ted stevens olympic act that says that any national governing body of an olympic sport has to grant one-third of the decision-making power at every level of the organization to essentially current and former athletes so in this case the definition of athletes encompasses people who have recently or are currently playing on any of our national teams um when you're thinking about you know the men's and women's senior national teams those are two of the national teams that make up the u.s national teams we have a lot of youth national teams and then we also have what are called the extended national teams so other soccer disciplines like futsal beach soccer and a lot of disability soccer disciplines like cerebral palsy and power chair soccer deaf soccer all fall under the extended national team department at U.S. soccer and are also part of the national team. So there is a representative group of athletes that all national team players can vote on to represent them as the athletes council. And so members of the athletes council have one third of the vote in all of U.S. soccer's governance at every level. That means organization wide. It means the board of directors. One third of the voting members of the board of directors are athletes. And even the board committees, you know, committees and task forces have to be made up one third athletes at every level of the organization if they have decision making power. So that's the biggest council by voting percentage is the athletes council. The other three big councils 
are the pro council. So they get 20% of the vote and that's the professional leagues. So MLS, NWSL, USL, NISA, and for essentially as long as the litigation between NASL and US soccer is pending, the <laughs> NASL, even though they are not active as a league, still gets a vote in the pro council. So the pro council represents the pro leagues. It doesn't represent the pro players. It only represents the pro clubs insofar as the leagues are representing the club's interest. So the people that get to vote and decide at the pro council level are the leagues themselves. It's not the clubs, it's not the players. So this is thing about Don Garber as the commissioner, yeah. Jessica Berman as the commissioner, um, Alec Papadakis, you know, as the head of USL, um, the Prutch family as the head of NISA. Uh, those are the people that make up the pro council. That's 20% of the vote. And then the other two big councils that are left are the youth council and the adult council. And those are apportioned a little bit like the electoral college where, you know, the adult council is a little bit easier because the national U S adult soccer associations so or amateur soccer and at the adult level, um, is broken up into members, most of whom are state associations. So the state associations, that means, you know, there's a Virginia, adult soccer state association there's a florida adult soccer state association and those associations organize adult soccer in in their states so they get apportioned votes within that 20 percent of the adult council based on the number of registered players they have so if you have more registered players you get a larger chunk of the vote um and that's a little bit of an oversimplification because there are members of the adult council that are not state associations there are leagues you know wpsl UWS, yep. you know, the, the semi-pro uh, women's leagues, summer leagues that register adult players, they also get votes. They're not a state, but they're part of the adult council. Um, and on the youth side, it's similar, except for the fact that there are more youth organizations than just U.S. youth soccer. U.S. youth soccer is the one that is organized by states, but U.S. club soccer gets votes in the youth council. U AYSO gets votes in the youth council. And again, those are apportioned from that 20% based on the number of registered players that you get. Um, then that's, you know, 33, 20, 20, 20. It leaves 6.67% of the vote out there. Uh, there's another membership category called, called the at-large council that exists for members that don't quite fit into one of the other major council categories. So some of the disability soccer organizations are part of the at-large council, some national leagues like UPSL, is is part of the at-large council and some of the futsal organizations are also part of the at-large council so there's this other kind of catch-all category so that people who are within the soccer space not people in organizations who are within the soccer space still get a say in how the federation is run um, and then there's a tiny marginal percentage of the vote that goes to individual members so members of the board get a vote um, past presidents of the federation get a vote people who have been inducted as life members of the federation for their lifetime of dedication and achievement in the soccer space get a vote and there's a thing called the fan council that u.s soccer insiders get insiders kind of capital i insiders so if you pay to be a u.s soccer insider you get a say in who represents fan interests in the fan council and so two members of the fan council also get individual votes in the national council meetings. Um, so that's that's kind of how things are organized 
as far as voting interests, uh, the two things that U.S. soccer doesn't oversee in the soccer world are high school soccer and college soccer. Those exist outside of the Federation's purview. But everything else, youth soccer, you know, amateur adult Sunday league, professional leagues and the national teams, all of that comes together once a year at the U.S. soccer annual general meeting to discuss matters that are relevant to the entire federation. Um, so that's that's how the vote is organized. Um, it's very complex. It's a lot of different competing interests. And where the vice president comes in is there's a national board of directors that governs you know, U.S. soccer's business and, and guides the direction of the federation. The way that most of the board is comprised, it's actually a constituency-based board. So there are seats on the board reserved for the youth council, and there are seats on the board reserved for the adult council and the pro council and the athletes council. And so those people who sit on the board are doubly looking out for the interests of the federation. That's the role as board members of the federation, but they're also members of organizations within the federation that have their own interests and a lot of the times those interests align in parallel and and everyone wants more access to soccer everyone wants more registered players but there are times where those interests are not exactly perfectly aligned and those members of the board need to make a decision about what is better for the federation without being influenced by the fact that it might not be what is better for their own organization whose interests they're representing so Within that structure, there are three independent directors. And so those people are historically coming from outside of soccer to give expertise in their business background, their legal background, their political backgrounds. So they're coming in entirely outside of soccer to give a level of independence and complement the skill sets that are on the board. But then you have the role of the president and the vice president. Those are the only two seats that are left where you can have people come from the soccer world, but who are not from any one of the membership councils. So they're the ones that are voted on by the entire membership altogether. So that's a place where I believe, you know, having someone who has a broad view of soccer in this country who has touch points across the different councils but who doesn't come from any one of the councils and is beholden to the interest of any one of the member organizations can be a really useful asset to the federation to bring people together and build bridges across the councils within the councils from the membership to the federation so now we get to the role of the vice president which was the original question um (laughs) So (laughs) you have the president, you know, the president, Cindy Parlocone, she sets the strategic direction for the organization. She chairs the board. She is the leader of the board of directors and as such is tasked with charting the course. Where do we want the federation to be going? Then you have the CEO and the secretary general, which is the same person, CEO slash secretary general, uh, JT Batson, who is, um, you know, coming up on his first, second year in that role. And his job is to execute that vision. So the board sets a direction, the CEO manages the staff, the CEO manages the day-to-day decision-making of the organization and the creation and implementation of a strategic plan to get the federation in the direction that the president wants to go. 
So within that, there's not room for another cook in the kitchen. So, you know, the VP is not a decision-making role. It actually doesn't even have a vote in the board of directors. Um, and that's kind of another quirk of, of the Federation's governance and history of how we came to have a 22 member board. Um, but because it does not have a very clearly defined role other than if the president steps down, that is the person that that assumes the presidency. I see it as a really exciting opportunity to kind of reimagine how does someone in this role help the president achieve her vision and and where are places where there are initiatives that are big enough to make an impact but small enough to be implementable where can the vice president help bring those to life while the president is busy charting the strategic direction of the organization and the ceo is busy running things every day okay. yeah very that's very i think that's very interesting on how like how the structure i mean i guess it's kind of like the structure of we think of like joe biden and kamala harris right like they work together but they don't work on the same thing so i think that like when i'm when you're explaining the structure i guess that's how the structure is kind of set up for u.s soccer which is very interesting when you think about you know not not using the word usefulness but like hey how do we accomplish these things right like you you would almost think you want all hands to really be focusing on one strategy but i like how your your, your thoughts are hey what what other areas can we grow in and how can we implement and, and i like the word implementable right because you can say you want to grow in this area and not have the the support or the structure to really help you in this area, right? Like what are areas that are looking for change and looking to grow that you can really you know, stick your foot in? So Nathan, I think the, the biggest thing that jumps out at me, um, which is we ask ourselves this question quite a bit on this podcast, or at least ask our, our guests the, the question of why, like what, what's the why, you know, cause there's, um, there's gotta be a reason for it. Um, and, and, and I feel like there's gotta be a really good reason because what you explained, even though you did extremely well in a short amount of time, uh, seems like, like a lot to, to jump into, right. It's, it's not, it's not something that you just lightly do, right. You, you recently stepped down as your, as the assistant GM for Gotham FC. So there, there's, there's a, there's a personal sacrifice that you're making for this. So why? Thirty second. Yeah. What's your thirty second elevator speech? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if I can. Give you, you, that. you got more than thirty seconds. But yeah. yeah. No, it's just. Yeah. So really, I see this as a massive opportunity to embrace the future of soccer in this country. So there's an element of timing, right? The next four years, we're going to host everything there is to host. Hopefully, we get the Women's World Cup, but everything there is to host in major global soccer in the US. So there is not a better place to be over the next four years if you're a soccer fan than the US. So that opportunity that we have is going to make the Federation grow. No matter who is in charge or what position, the World Cups are going to bring a level of interest and attention to the game. That means that four years from now, we will have more registered players, more registered coaches, more registered referees, higher interest in the game from strong fans to casual fans. So the question that I'm really interested in is not just, are we going to be better off in four years, but are we going to maximize the opportunity that we have in front of us? And I think in order to do that, we need someone who can help unify our membership 
I mean, I, I touched on our governance in a very neutral, matter of fact way, but there's a lot of internal dynamics. That means that certain parts of the membership have squabbles with other parts of the membership across the councils, within the councils. And I think for us to make the most of this golden era of soccer that's coming our way, we need to get people on the same page and pulling in the same direction. And we need someone who can help make sure that every community is included in the growth of the game. Because for a long time, there have been barriers to growth and barriers to access. That means that certain demographics and certain populations have been not fully integrated into the Federation's membership. And we need someone who can help push the Federation into the 21st century with innovative thinking, data-driven decision-making, so that when we look back on the next four years, we feel like we've made the most of the chances that we have coming our way. So that's kind of the timing and the opportunity in front of us. And then there's, a, you know, why do I think I can be someone who can fit that mold? Um, I love soccer. I, I wake up and think about soccer every day of my life. I love soccer, not just as a game, but as a tool that brings people together and as a powerful vehicle for social impact and social change. And when you think about the federation structure and how much of the sports infrastructure it touches on, that's where you can maximize your impact if you want to leverage soccer as a force for good. And I've worked at the federation, so I've seen things from the inside out or from the top down, however you want to visualize it, and was in a lot of the rooms while I was there as assistant to presidents where some of the biggest decisions were being discussed and made. So I've seen things from that perspective and I've also left the Federation and I've done work across the different membership councils, whether paid at Gotham or, or pro bono volunteer for some of the other councils. So I've seen soccer from a lot of different vantage points. And I think that having those touch points and those relationships makes me a good candidate to bring people together because I have enough, you know, enough relationships, both personal and professional across different councils. But crucially, I don't have any special interests that I'm advocating for. Right. And so someone who is both broadly knowledgeable and neutral and independent, I think that's the right mix of who can help bring people together, unified in the direction of Cindy and JT's vision. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I mean, being neutral, right? Because just thinking about what you're saying, like if you were, you know, just thinking like Sebastian or I, if we were to run, like we're we're fully engulfed in like the youth soccer aspect, right? So like everything that we would want to change would be youth soccer driven. We you know we don't have that experience in other areas, um, and for someone that's neutral, they're able to listen to all those different conversations and kind of pull out pull out those key points that it can really impact the decision that helps all the groups. Right. And that way that, you know, it's not one certain group is driving change for everybody. It's not, you know, like, obviously we want to have the best national teams. We want to have the best organization out of all the organizations in the world, but it's about doing things the right way and making sure all the groups are feeling it across the board and not just one group is succeeding and the other groups, you know, falling down. Well, and I think, you know, what <clears throat> what jumps out at me is the fact that two things. One, um, 
and we talk a lot we talk a lot about this all the time is why do people do this and and it's clear that that not only i mean have you, you just said it right you don't have a specific like agenda to a certain extent that you're like looking out for the best interest of you know x party soccer um, yeah just soccer just the federation just exactly right he, so he wants so the best players to kick the ball in the goal the most times that weren't that have some affiliation with the u.s <laughs> well and i think i think that's i think that's i think that's the that's the key right it's it's the there is no um ulterior motive to it right it's it's the idea that you're doing good because it's you know you're doing good for the good of the game yeah. right because it's it's that concept because i think and you said it right it's it the soccer is a uh, a platform for social change i mean we're going to talk about this later on the podcast but today um uh the ac milan goalkeeper stepped off the field because yep because of racist remarks made to him and this is not the first time this has happened so it's it's we live in a society where we we all say that we we agree on what the right things are, but we continue to see day in and day out that the change gets made, but not all the way to the point where like those things should, we shouldn't realistically we shouldn't have to talk about cases of racism in a soccer field anymore. We shouldn't have to talk about cases of racism anywhere in general, but but specifically in, in this in this context. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's important too. I think it's important too to include those. Uh, Nathan said it. He's like those groups that we can't that that aren't involved, right? Reaching out to those groups so they can be a part of the solution because you can't make a I can't make a solution for Sebastian if Sebastian or someone representing Sebastian isn't included in the conversation, right? Like we can't like for the people that are like you know doing the racism racist chants, right? You want to include them in the conversation. Why are you like what's the why and how can we support you to find a different avenue to support your team? without going down this down this path yeah. right so it's yeah. about including it's about including you know everybody that you, you know some groups don't want to be you know some groups don't want to be bothered they could see membership being an extra thing one extra thing we don't have time um you can understand that too right but um i think it's important to you know still give them the opportunity because if you if you don't give them the opportunity they don't have any way to change yeah and and Around the world, soccer is such a powerful driver of culture that it really is a big leverage point to implement things if done correctly, like anti-racist education and, you know, anti-homophobic education. That That's an issue that's been very, very big in the Mexican Federation over the last couple of years. And I think in the U.S., Obviously, soccer is not yet the preeminent sport, but I think we've already reached the point where it is a big driver of culture. And when I was at the Federation, we were in the middle of the lawsuit with the U.S. Women's National Team for equal pay. And this is a nice little nugget. The global searches for the term equal pay over the last five, six, seven years peaked the day that we won the 2019 women's world cup and it you know there's a spike every time it's equal pay day there's a spike every time congress passes an equal pay act but the day that had the highest traffic searches for equal pay was when the women's national team won the women's world cup so that's the power that soccer already has in our culture 
and using it for good is what I want to do with my life. I think that is the the purpose that I want to have in my career is have we done everything to leverage soccer to make the world a better place. Um you you touched on on making um the decision making being data driven. Um so let's provide a little context to that. Uh you're a Harvard grad. Yes. Uh, philosophy and statistics. Yep. Uh, you walked onto the soccer team and became captain of the soccer team. There. Yes. Uh, so where where has where did that where does that background from from data and even and I, I listened to one of your uh, you were in a panel discussing how you were one of the deciding you had one of the you were in the room when when you chose the 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 coach for Gotham and how data was going to be part of the driving factor of what you were going to do with that. How is how is that experience, and what what does data driven decision making look like, and and how did it how did it what did you ultimately do? Before I dive deeper into more questions I have about that, but just a you know, a quick overview on that part. Yeah, yeah. So I I studied statistics in undergrad because I see that as a very useful and broad toolkit to making better decisions. I, I think. People sometimes get spooked by the word data, especially in a, in a soccer context where historically decisions have been made on conventional wisdom and, you know, the phrase, oh, well, this is how we've always done things. And when you come in with data driven, people are like, oh, no, they don't they don't know the game. Um, but really what data is, is information. I mean, you want to make decisions based on the best information available to you and the best evidence available to you. So when we were looking for a coach at Gotham, we wanted someone who wasn't necessarily a data geek themselves, but who wanted to take in all possible information available to them to make the best and most informed decision. And that's what we found in, in Juan Carlos Amoros and his staff is a group of people who want to do everything possible to increase our chances of winning by 1% at a time. And they know that in order to do that, they need to have as much information available to them. And some of that information is their long background of coaching players and working with players. Some of that information comes in the form of crunching numbers and seeing, you know, what are some of the predictors of chance creation in the league, for example. Um, so really seeing the data analytics team as an extension of a group that is all trying to make the best decisions with the best information available is the best way to think about how we approached using data at Gotham. And even within that, there's two ways that I think we socialize the use of data. One is the literally we're crunching numbers, we're asking research questions and trying to find the answer and using that answer as part of our decision-making process. The other one is one step before that or one step above that more abstractly how do we set up a framework for decision making that is analytical and that allows for the flow of information the type of information that we're making decisions on to be used most effectively so thinking about bringing on board owners and general managers and coaches and people who don't have a degree in statistics, but to buy into the concepts that we're going to guide our decision-making in the first off season, things like when you're the worst team in the league, 
you want to make a lot of changes. You know, if you're the best team in the league, you want to make very few changes because you're already good. Yeah. So that concept in statistical terms is called variance. You know, the more things you change, the wider your array of outcomes will get. And when you are a bad team, you want you want more outcomes that are possible because if you don't change anything, then your array of outcomes is very narrow around where you already are. So approaching the offseason with the mindset of saying, oh, when we are making decisions, we want to generally, as a rule of thumb, make decisions that maximize variance. So we want more changes on our team. We want other teams to make more changes because that also increases the probabilities, you know, the, the branches on the probability tree. So if we want to go from being bad to being good, the only way we can do it is essentially rolling the dice yeah. and not being super conservative. So again, that was a principle that has statistical philosophical backing, but that anyone can grasp very, very easily. Um, and then things like, okay, well, we can't fix everything all at once. So let's focus on the things that we can control. And in soccer, generally speaking, scoring goals is pretty random. You know, there, there are the exact same circumstances where half the time it'll go in and half the time it won't, and you can't really predict it in advance. So what we wanted to do is focus on the things that are not random, like chance creation, and assuming that if we build a team around chance creation and chance prevention, then through the randomness, if we create a lot of chances, we'll score a lot of goals, you know, as opposed to focusing on the part that is random, we focused on the part that is not random. And again, that's a, a very high level concept. We were going to try to find players that will maximize our chance creation as opposed to focusing on the scoring. Um, that goes over, I'll say this, that probably goes over a lot of coaches' heads, which you just said. No, I'm serious. Like, Sebastian, so yeah. you're laughing. But seriously, yeah. That goes over a lot of coaches' heads that it's not like, if you went up to a coach and said, hey, you got a 50-50 shot of scoring, that they would argue with you because they think that they're right and you got a 75-25 or something like that, right? If it's a 1v1, your, your chances automatically go up and it's like, no, it's 50-50. Did you take advantage and did you create the chance to score the goal yeah. to get the yeah. better shot at the 50%? Yeah. So, so again, you know, we, we were – setting up a framework for strategic decision-making that was very analytical, even before we crunched a single number, like these were high level concepts that guided our thinking in the first off season. And then the next step was, okay, if we're going to maximize chance creation, how do we do that? You know, what are the metrics that predict chance creation? Who are the players that have high marks along these metrics and how do we get them? Is it going to cost this much? Are they worth it given our salary cap? So yeah. it's a two-step process. Well, Simplified, it's a two-step process. There's the analytical decision-making framework, and then there's the analysis of the decisions along the pathway with our data analyst weighing in, our coaching staff weighing in, our ownership weighing in, me and the general manager weighing in, and then aligning those opinions into a consensus is also a statistical process. I mean, without getting too philosophical, there's, there's two major conceptions of theoretical statistics. Um, one of them is Bayesian statistics, which essentially means that as you take in more information about the world, you update your beliefs accordingly. And so in soccer terms, maybe I think someone's a good player because I looked at the numbers. And then if the coaching staff independently 
comes to me and said, hey, we've been watching this player. And by watching them, we think they're really good. Then I say, oh, I, I already thought they were really good from the numbers perspective. The coaches are saying they think she's really good from their you know trained eye as soccer coaches. So my belief that she is good now became stronger. Right. And in doing that over and over again, we can arrive at decisions that we feel more confident that you can never guarantee anything. Everyone can agree on something and then it might not pan out the way that you want, but we can at least be more confident if people independently arrived at the same conclusion that that is the right conclusion. So that was another part of the big principles of analytical decision-making that we were following. That's, that's impressive. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's it's interesting it's another because, way to break down the game. Well, no, for sure, but I think I think you I think you I mean you hit the nail on the head there, right? Like it's there are some unpredictable factors in soccer, right? You can't predict that your goalkeeper is going to get a red card in the like ninety first minute of the final, <laughs> oh right? God. You you can't predict that, but but you can predict that that you got yourself there, right? Or that or you had you had better chances to get yourself there, or the fact you had the fact that you scored two goals in that game. Um, where give me a better chance at winning that game, right? Exactly, right. So, yeah, in in, just like anything, right? We've seen it. We've seen it all over the place, right? Where you know, especially now in this this time of the year, where on the men's side, you have, you know, Copa del Rey, FA Cup. You have all these, all these, all these tournaments and leagues where you know the smaller teams. Or you know, teams from lower divisions will play against the big fish and things like that, and you'll see some upsets here and there. But the reality is, is that you've you put yourself in a better position because of that. How do you now leverage all of that knowledge and experience, and to a certain extent, proof of concept to U.S. soccer? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. I mean, I want us to be making decisions with the same framework and i'm not i'm not saying we're not doing that what i am saying is i bring a very particular skill set to, to help us do that better um and when you're thinking about off the field you know can we moneyball soccer growth is is the question so it's not as simple as saying oh well here's where we have a lot of registered players or very few registered players it's about thinking where how big is the gap between the registered players that we do have and the registered players that we could have you know and not just thinking about it in a static sense of what does that look like today but the census and other entities are able to predict population growth into several years or even decades in advance so we can get ahead of the curve and say where will we have the biggest gap between registered players and potential registered players in five years and 10 years. And how do we use that information to make sure that the investments that we're making and growing the game give us the best return on investment? So it goes even beyond players. You know, you, when you're thinking about the growth of the game, players is one part of it, but you can try to sign up as many players as possible. And if you don't have the fields to play in, then there's a limit on how many more players you can register and bring in. If you sport. don't have the coaches or referees. If you don't have the coaches and the referees, then then the, there's a cap on how much you can grow. If you don't have the soccer administrators who run the clubs or run the state associations, then you also have a cap. 
And so figuring out kind of what is the trade-off of a dollar spent into referee infrastructure, like, is that going to allow us to grow more because of the fact that that is a limiting factor in the growth of how many registered players we can have? All those questions, there's no single answer. There's no answer sheet that you can turn to the back and say, this is the correct answer, but they're all questions that have a quantitative component to it. And, and we have a lot of data. I mean, we have just a lot of people in this country that interact with the federation. So we have the tools to tease out in the data, what are the reasons for declining referee registration? And once we have that data, then we can make smarter decisions about how to address it. So I think that applies to a lot of different vectors of the Federation's decision-making. And I would like to go in there to help be a resource in applying data-driven decision-making with the team of very smart data analysts that already work at U.S. Soccer um, so that we can feel confident that we are making the right decisions. Um, I'll tell you what, I can uh, tell you, I, I think that's an interesting conversation. I can tell you, just off the top of my head, I think you can see a decrease in player registrations in those ages where you would see them becoming a referee. Uh, I think those players kind of leave the game and maybe not leave the game completely, but they focus on high school soccer, which isn't a part of U.S. soccer, right? So you lose those, you almost lose those players to a different organization and you don't have, you don't have control over them anymore because they can go to play in high school soccer and go straight to the NCAA. Yeah. And for eight years, those players basically drop off the map, right? If they don't do anything USA, they don't play for club or they don't play in, a, in an adult league or something like that. So you kind of lose track of those players. So I think that um, when we think about that, and, and I think it was interesting when you, sit, when you brought that up, um, that, you know, U.S. soccer, it misses almost like those eight years that are critical that players really look forward to, right? High school soccer and college soccer and U.S. soccer is not a part of that. So I think it's almost like, how do you almost bridge that gap, right? And kind of you know, bring those organizations or find a way to collaborate with those organizations. Because I think I mean, that's a key piece to to grow in the game. I think it would be interesting, you know, being a data guy to see how many players in the in the country specifically just play, you know, NFA, what is it, NFA chess or whatever? NFA chess. Versus being a registered club soccer player like how many unique players are there and saying well man if there's a gap of like eight thousand players like how do we bridge that gap and how do we get those players because i mean that's a population that you're really missing out on yeah especially when you talk about players from different demographics too right high school soccer is free for the most part so it's kind of a no-brainer to play high school soccer versus playing club yeah and and I, you know, I played for my high school and it was one of the most fun experiences that I had. I also played development academy for my club and I really enjoyed that, but I, I've seen it from both sides. And that's where I think the perspective of someone who has more recently been in the youth soccer landscape as a player. Uh, I mean, you know, we're going on over a decade at this point, but um, much more recently than than other people allows me to speak from a vantage point that has been underrepresented in the decisions and discussions about what happens with youth soccer, what happens with amateur adult soccer. So I think some of the biggest target populations that we have to 
grow the game and grow our registration numbers are that young adult demographic that kind of drop off the face of the earth for a little bit. Yeah. It, the Latino demographic that they're playing soccer, you know, they're not, not playing soccer. No, they're uh, definitely playing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're playing. Is can we integrate them into our membership by communicating, you know, what is the value proposition of membership and, and developing a trust that they don't currently have towards the Federation or, or the subsidiary member organizations. Um, and it's also growing the women's game, you know, and that's, I, I'm not a woman, but I've worked very diligently in the women's soccer space specifically. And so I also have a lot of connections and, and, and a vested interest in making sure that we're growing the women's game alongside. Yeah, then, I think that's huge. I think that's yeah. huge too, um, yeah. being invested in it. Because you can't say, hey, I want to grow women's soccer in the country and then not have any type of investment or say, like obviously like right we're not women right but we still all all three of us have an investment in the game but we've invested ourselves we didn't just show up one day and say well you know what i'm gonna grow my club to have six women's teams and not have anything to say about it or know what goes into having a women's team even have female coaches right and i think that's an area we can we all can grow too is right is how do we grow female coaches how do we grow female referees i think that's a huge Huge impact that the country could have. Um, I think again, right? It starts in that in that high school age group. Like it's like, how do we bridge that gap? Because those players are the ones that are getting ready to go into the job marketing, and they're the future, right? So it's like, how do we how do we bridge that gap with them and to help them, you know, the overall vision of soccer in the country? Yeah. So good, Sebastian. No, so yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, so many questions in my head as a, as we're continuing diving deeper in the conversation. This is definitely not going to be a the first time or the only time we're going to have you on the podcast for sure. Yeah. But, um, you know when you when you talk about the the idea of growing women's women's soccer in the United States, um, obviously we know what happened in the World Cup. Um, you know, uh, extremely heavily documented by Netflix. Uh, we can agree or disagree whether whether we like the Netflix documentary or not. But um, do you think, in your experience, and, and especially because you've you've now experienced it at an international level with other players from from other countries with Gotham um, and the work you've done in the past? But you know, are we? You know, is it is it a question of the rest of the world is catching up to us? Or is it a question of we let the rest of the world catch up to us because we haven't done more? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. I don't think I've seen that or heard that posed in that way. I think it's a mix of both. I mean, we had a massive structural advantage in the U.S. with Title IX, so we just jumped right to the front. And if you look at which countries historically have been leaders in the women's soccer space. It's not necessarily the traditional men's powerhouses. It's the countries that had the highest index of gender equity and gender equality. So you got the U.S. winning the World Cups, Norway winning the World Cup, um, Japan winning the World Cup, and those are not traditionally men's soccer powerhouses. So now you've got, you know, coming from the other angle, 
countries that are really good at soccer historically have now come around to start investing in their women's programs. And so now you have Spain winning the World Cup. Yeah. So so it's it's a mix of both. I mean, we can't control how much Spain and the other sure. European Brazilian federations are investing into their women's programs. I think it's great that they are investing more and more. Um, but it poses a really interesting problem, which is what does the future of women's soccer look like if we want to stay at the top? And we don't have the answer yet. And I I, I mean that in a, we still get to design the answer. Yeah. It's a really, really exciting approach. I think the college game has dropped in terms of its relative value as the best place to develop talent because now there are academies there are players who can go pro before they go to college uh, but it is still a massive tool and advantage that we have in the u.s that other countries don't have i mean it is essentially a nationwide semi-professional development league for the women's game that i think some of the teams like the florida state team this year would probably do really well in a lot of european leagues i don't yeah. think they'd win you know i don't think they'd win the top European leagues, but probably mid table. Um, and so I think we have a special set of tools and a special infrastructure and just a massive population that has probably more girls playing soccer per capita than any other country. I don't know that for a fact. This is where, you know, I, I'd like to yeah. look at the numbers. Um, but um, there are places in the soccer infrastructure side of things where we're behind other countries. Um, I think coaching, for example, in the NWSL has been historically of a lower standard than the players that we have. And so if we increase the level of coaching in the NWSL, it will increase the level of player that wants to come play here. And then it increases the level of the league, which increases the level of the players. So it really is like a lot of problems in the soccer world a holistic approach um and the next big question is is what do youth academies and elite youth development on the girls and women's side look like in a world where women's soccer is becoming more and more professionalized and it's a real opportunity now for players to make decent money instead of going to college like that was not really the balance of things even four or five years ago lindsey haran skipping college to go pro was a big watershed moment um and since then more and more players have opted to not go to college opted to leave college early so it, it's a really really quickly changing landscape and we meaning u.s soccer meaning the nwsl the usl super league we need to be very very nimble to evolve with it and not be left behind. Um, it's extremely interesting because again, and I'm, I'm, these are all questions that we, these are all things we've talked about in the, in previous episodes of the podcast. So that's why it's interesting to take your, to, to get your perspective of it because um, we see it a lot in the, either in the youth side or doing and I coach a UWS team. Um, we've coached the UWS team the past three years. Yeah. Um, so we've seen it from that perspective of of looking at it from a at a much lower scale. None of our players are well, actually, we did have a player play uh for the U18 Kenyan national team, uh, which was which is a big accomplishment for her. And and That's awesome. we were super proud of her. But but we're looking at it from more from the the perspective of like, you know, this this 
constant at times and you mentioned it before you know there's not everyone's always on the same page and everyone's looking out for their best interest so like for example on the girl side you have you know ecnl versus the girls academy and you know depending on where you live you may have access to both and where do you go and in our area depending on where you live you have access to both and you get to you know yeah depending on your your ability and everything else you get to decide where where you want to go play um but then that that puts so many and, and i look at it from the youth standpoint of we put so much pressure at times on kids because we professionalize it so the point where the girls academy or ecnl or even a, a club team is taking up you know x amount of time of their day plus they have school plus potentially high, high school soccer and now all of a sudden they are training um they're training or competing every day of the week every day of the week which is not, i'm not saying playing soccer every day of the week is a bad thing but at the pressure of did you make this team if you didn't make the team can you we go to another team if you don't like the coach we can go to another team if we don't like this we can go some in all these or I have things. to play on I have to play on this team to be recruited because they yeah. have letters yeah. at, letters at the end of their name or they had a certain status like that's it's kind of where like I think, I think this is where I think Nathan coming in as a neutral would definitely help benefit and say listen like you know trying to bring in you know if you're trying to bring in communities that that aren't represented right why are they not represented? probably financial reasons right or probably they don't want to be regulated for a certain extent so i think it's huge um to grow the game to get these people in have these conversations and then let's not put a cap on it but let's regulate it like let's let's make sure that it's equal and fair for everyone to be able to participate to grow because at the end of the day you want to grow the game you want to have the best team but if we're limiting the people that can participate on these teams yeah we're not gonna have the best teams so where do you see the the youth soccer aspect of it going and developing um in the next coming years because you mentioned it right we're going to host over the next three or four years we're going to host the the major tournaments across the board outside of the olympics we're pretty much going to host everything else um from an international standpoint and we're going to host the first ever club world cup with 32 teams and the first 48 team men's world cup so so when you look at and we're hosting the cup america again um in a much bigger sense this time right so so where does the youth aspect of it because you know there's players potentially playing youth soccer right now that that are going to be part of that process that's along the way yeah i think i think where we should be moving towards and then u.s soccer has taken a couple of steps in this direction which is very promising is toward aligning the different youth organizations along a unified pathway um it doesn't mean that there's only room for one organization it just means that everyone has to kind of be on board with how the pathway is supposed to look and and within kind of that framework and, and rules you can find your space within it um so th- there's there's um unification talks going on the the leaders of the major amateur soccer organization so both youth and adult kind of started to solicit feedback from their members around what could a unified landscape look like um and it's 
it's going to be difficult. <laughs> you know, it's not, if it were easy, then maybe we would have done it by now. Yeah. Uh, but even, even getting to the point where people are sitting down with each other and talking about, okay, how do we make this work is a massive accomplishment. And I think it would help to have people in those conversations who are only looking out for what is best for, for sure. lowercase y youth, lowercase s soccer. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the end product of that looks like. I don't know what the current discussions are shaping towards, but I think it, it looks like the Federation taking some initiative and leadership and saying, hey, not everyone's going to like this, but this is the right thing for the youth landscape. And so how do we all work together to make this work? Um, and I think from my perspective, it just it has to have as wide as possible of an entry point so that we get as many kids who want to play soccer, the opportunity to play soccer. And it's not, it's not just about, will that lead to the best possible national yeah. team? I think if you're focusing on reaching as many kids as possible to play soccer, soccer has given me everything in my professional career. I came to the U.S. to play soccer. I stayed in the U.S. to play soccer. I went to college, played soccer there. And that's where I learned about things like leadership and commitment and hard work and teamwork. And so I didn't go pro, but those skills have served me really well in my life. And if we are helping right now, there's 4 million registered players and the vast majority of those are under the age of 18, if we're helping millions of kids develop those skills and 99.9% .9 of them don't play pro, but they are better citizens, then that's a really thing that's something to really be proud of. And that's how I would like to guide my thinking. And if we get that right, then we're also going to get more kids who will end up being better pros and better national team players. So from my perspective, it, it starts from the grassroots up. And that's the mindset that we should have as opposed to from the national teams down. So you said, you said we have 4 million registered players? Roughly. So is that about 1% of the population? Yeah. Wow. Again, roughly. I think there, there's some double counting. There's some undercounting yeah. because people are playing soccer, but they're not registered. So U.S. soccer has undertaken a multi-year effort to try to really, really hone in on what is the number. Uh, but in a rough estimate, it is close to or just under 4 million. Wow. When you look at it, the population of the country and you look at the number of players that are actually playing, it's, I would be, it would be super interesting to find out where that, where that falls in line with other countries, even, even just from the surrounding countries. And when you look at the 2026 World Cup, what does it look like in Canada? What does it look like in Mexico? You know, the, the percentage of, of, of players in comparison to their population? Is it higher? Is it lower? Um, well, I think we hit it on that. We hit it on the head where we said registered players. Because um, that's not counting the players that are just going out to the park, right? We said it. We said it. Sure. Players are just going out and playing, right? And they're just playing. That's not counting. I mean, I think if you count the high school players, that really boosts your number, right? Because everybody plays high school for the most part, right? Um, which I think you're leaving out probably, give or take. 1.5 mil probably more easily but i think but um, I, I think beyond, but i think beyond that i think it's i think it's a matter of understanding the ultimate goal and i think nathan you're you're i i try to talk about this all the time and we i've had this discussion before with 
with a couple of different parents that their their son or daughter have been you know maybe left off a team or, or something like that at either either at MLS Academy or GA or whatever. Um, and I think a lot about that. Yes, ultimately difficult decisions have to be made, and, and I get that part of it. But I think it's the I think it's the how and the why that are super important because the the effect of what of what leadership at any given point at any level whether it's high school you know ga ecnl mls whatever whatever aspect of it what you do to the player and we all have to sit and look at ourselves and go all right are we trying to push the game forward or not and if we can't look at everybody and you're right you can't look at everybody at the national team level right you can't look at this player and go well you're not a national team level player so I don't care about you, right? You can't you can't look at it from that standpoint. But um, ultimately, when we watch soccer games, we want to see, and we're watching on TV, uh, we want to see you know people in seats. Yep, those are soccer fans, right? Those that's a kid that at some point, or that was a person that's an adult or a kid at some point potentially kicked the ball, and now they're spending their money to go, and that's and, and we forget about that, right? Because. Yeah. <laughs> They, they ha- you have to live off the revenue that the ticket sell ticket sales too right like everyone well, and that person's that person's also going to get married and create children that are yeah. going to come back and play soccer right and you know if they were if they were an only child and they have three kids there's three more kids playing you know what i'm saying it's three more kids or you know there's yeah. a referee that it, that comes into it there's a, there's so a coach i'll i'll um i'll share and end on the note of the the mission of the federation kind of like as it is written in its bylaws is to promote the growth of soccer in all its recognized forms for all persons of all ages and abilities and to provide for the development of players coaches referees and administrators and when you think about like what does it take to achieve that like grow soccer for everyone of all ages um, and develop not just players but coaches referees administrators the through line between the different councils you know where we started and u.s soccer governance is creating a strong soccer culture and if you have a strong soccer culture that means more people will invite their co-workers to play sunday league every sunday and that means more people will have fun playing sunday league which means that then they say oh maybe i should buy a ticket to go see my professional team in town and then they'll really like it. And then they'll have kids and they say, oh, I want my kids to play soccer. So I'm going to sign them up to play soccer. And then one in a million of those kids will end up on the U.S. national team. So really, it's all one big yeah. puzzle. And the through line is, is creating a strong soccer culture. And then again, you know, where you're thinking about the, the limits on the growth of registered players, it's the coaches and referees and administrators. Yeah. And we spend a lot of money and a lot of resources and effort, rightly so, on talent identification on the field. But we don't spend nearly the same amount on talent identification off the field. And I think in some cases to have someone who will be a really, really great club administrator and finding that person and developing that person and providing the mentorship and the resources to grow into a good soccer administrator or soccer executive would yield better results than spending a lot of money to find the 14th best left back in the U13 boys pool, you know? So, so it really is a, a very holistic web to untangle 
in order to grow the game and and really use the opportunity over the next four years to transform the game forever and for everyone. Um, I I will say before we before we start wrapping up, the fact that you said uh, talent notification for 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 club administrators that that warmed my heart. Uh, that's oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of of club administrators. Uh, I used to be one. Uh, so that's uh, that's that that speaks that speaks right up my alley. And, and um, that's that's me. You know, I mean, I, I haven't run my own club, but my point is, I have loved soccer since I was a little kid, yeah. and I played it. And pretty early on, realized that I probably wasn't going to make it pro. <laughs> and my, I switched my attention to say, okay, well, you don't just have to be a player in order to stay connected to the game and and make an impact within the game. That's kind of when I shift my focus to I want to work in soccer and I want to make an impact in soccer, even if I'm not a pro player. Um, you know, through my time at the Federation and, and beyond, I have done pretty well for myself, but I've also seen that the opportunities that exist are not distributed equally among people who are interested in them. And so one of the things that I used to do while I was at the Federation and we would travel, I would travel for national team games. I would try to show up to whatever city we were going to maybe a day early and set up meetings with the local women college soccer teams, you know, through their coaches so that I could come in and talk about, Hey, you know, this is, this is what the Federation's org chart looks like. And I know you are all here because at some level, in some way you, you like soccer, you love soccer many of you would probably enjoy working in soccer, but you've only thought about it in a binary sense of either I play pro or I get a quote unquote real job. But there's so much in between that I would say things like, oh, tell me what your majors are and I will tell you what U.S. soccer department. Yeah, people say, oh, yeah, I'm pre-med. Well, U.S. soccer has a medical department. I'm pre-law. Well, U.S. soccer has a legal department. So since then, I've helped. I mean, I did it at duke and at ucla and at unc and at columbia um and there are people who are interested in pursuing jobs in soccer that now had an avenue to think about those things in a different way and who i could help with their resumes and i could help connect to clubs and organizations that were looking for interns or for entry-level positions um so i want to make sure that as the federation and, and the members of the federation we are seeing our duty and obligation through and it's it's right here in the in the mission of the organization um that we are continuing the development of players and coaches and referees and administrators that's planting seeds for trees you'll never see grow yeah yeah so we might we might that and that that's that's also part of my we're like we're a lot younger than you are sebastian we'll see this tree grow <laughs> uh, <laughs> It no, might it no. might be falling. The branches might be falling off, but hey, it'll, <laughs> yeah. it'll grow. And part of the reason why I feel strongly about you know raising my hand now is that I want to do work that I will see the benefits of. Yeah. So I, I think that is part of my motivation. Is if we do work right now, I'll still be around. And yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so that and uh, any any parting questions or thoughts yeah uh no, i think it was awesome well a i honestly think a nathan for vp.com 
website. Uh, website yeah, plug your plug, Nathan. Go ahead and plug yourself in. Where can where can our listeners, your listeners, that maybe listen to you or follow you on one platform? Where can they find you? Yeah, uh, my campaign website is nathan4vp.com. That's four F O R, not the number four. Um, and most of my social accounts are at Nat Gold C. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, I, I try to be pretty open and transparent about the election and how I'm going around talking to people and campaigning. I want this to also be an opportunity for people who are soccer fans, but not familiar with how the Federation works to have a little bit of an inside look at how the decisions are made. And yeah. so I think if nothing else, regardless of the outcome, if more people come out of this aware of how the Federation operates, then it's a win for people in soccer. One final, one final thought. Uh, you recently reached a milestone. Uh, actually in Delaware, right? Yes. Delaware, Delaware was the milestone. Was that we were the milestone state for Nathan? Uh, tell us what milestone you reached and why it yeah. was important. So I visited every single soccer state to meet with and listen to voting delegates from the federation, and it was such a fun adventure. Um, I say soccer state because in U.S. soccer geography. There are actually 55 states. Um, yeah. Some states are so big that they're split in two for organizational purposes. So California, Texas are split into Cal North, Cal South, and North Texas and South Texas. Um, New York and Pennsylvania are split yep. East-West. Um, Ohio is split North-South, but only on the adult side because on the youth side, they merged a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, you know, there, there are corners of the soccer landscape that I know really well because I've lived them and I've worked with them. And there are also a lot of corners of the soccer landscape that I just don't know as well. No one can because our country is so big and there's so much soccer going on that the way that I wanted to approach this was to say, well, if I don't know what's going on in Delaware, then I should listen to the people that know what's going on in Delaware and take my cues from them. And yeah, at some point, you know, I, I do a lot of travel already for personal reasons for, with Gotham for all our away games. Um, and I started visiting a lot of states and, and saw the map. And I said, wouldn't it be crazy if I went and talked to everyone? Um, and it's really landed well with the people that I talked to um, because they feel listened to, they feel cared for. Um, and again, you know, where we started this conversation was U.S. soccer is a membership-based organization and the members are the federation in my view. So making sure that they feel like their voices are taking into account is really important. And Delaware was the 55th state that I visited. So that was the last state um, that was escaping me on my map until um, I got to have coffee with Chad Reed, who introduced me to the podcast in dover um on january 3rd there you go would you have coffee at dover house of coffee uh yeah actually it was right right by the <laughs> state house uh that's the other thing house of coffee I, yeah i i enjoy visiting state houses just or uh, state legislatures um just to take a picture over there so uh, it was nice to to get to see delaware and check it off the list 
figured I figured uh, Wild Quail probably doesn't serve coffee that early in the morning, so you had to go no, to the next probably, best place. Yeah, yeah. Unless you were a golf fan and you were decided to take a round of golf with Chad, <laughs> that's probably Mid- why it took. Mid- that's probably why it took so long. Midday, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a great adventure. I mean, I saw all these different corners of the soccer landscape. Awesome. You know, fields, offices where soccer decisions get made at the local level um met people you know at, at the end of the day you know, soccer is a team sport it's it's a people business as well and um the membership is organized by member organizations and those are the ones that get given a vote but those organizations are made up of people and when you connect with people one on one on a human level i think we all want the same thing and sometimes the organizational alignments get in the way because people get defensive and territorial but when you're talking to people as people yeah i think that opens up avenues for collaboration that will make the federation stronger nathan uh it was an absolute pleasure to have you on um we really appreciate you taking the time uh for what was supposed to be like a 45 minute thing and ended up being over an hour so we really appreciate it i mean you're in the middle of the campaign trail right like you, you gotta Come, it's coming up February February eighth, right? 8th, uh, so February eighth is, is when the annual general meeting begins. Yeah. Uh, the election itself takes place February tenth at the national council meeting. So February eighth and ninth is when the organization members kind of conduct their own business, and then February tenth is when all the members come together into one massive ballroom. This year, it's in Dallas, Texas, um, and conduct the entire federation's business. So. The election is at the end of the agenda of the National Council meeting on February 10th. Well, hopefully, hopefully February 10th at the end of that. It's good news. Uh, okay. Make sure you check out Nathan4VP.com. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much for, for coming. Thanks on. for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I look forward to a follow up after the election. For sure. For sure. Sorry, now I'm going. All right. Uh, Duane. Um, we, we kind of hinted at this, uh, on the, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna slightly, actually, I'll, I'll save this for, for when I get into my, my fair play of the week. Um, but, uh, I want to quickly, before we go into the player of the match before, cause this episode is going to getting, getting long, um, uh, a little bit of a, we hinted at this last week, Saudi Arabia players in Saudi Arabia are not super happy. Uh, yeah, I think we broke it last week. Jordan Henderson was rumored to be out. That's official. Yeah. Um, Big Ben. Ultimately, I read somewhere that uh, the way it worked out is that he ultimately played for free for six months. Who? Jordan Henderson? Yeah, because of the taxes he had to pay back and all that other stuff. Yeah, it gets weird with, I guess it would fall under Brexit because he's a, he's a uh, United Kingdom. Uh, see, Dwayne's starting to hit those parts of the part of parts of parts of the road, the drive. Uh, remote area. I think what it comes down to for jo- I think what it comes down to for Jordan Henderson is the fact that he lives in the United Kingdom and the way they tax where you live and or where you yeah. say you're living. And I'm assuming he still has a house in the United Kingdom somewhere, so the United Kingdom wants their pennies. Um, I don't know. It just seems like a really sketchy contract. Yeah, um, and then. Um, never had Saudi Arabian cuisine either, so I can probably say, you know, I don't know what the food was like out there. Well, 
that's a nice short but i mean food's got to play a part into it too right maybe but um but um emmerich laporte also came out and said that um that he said that there are players that are dissatisfied with it one of the things he mentioned is that he has to and i understand that it's a you know when you look at it, it's a you know first world problem to a certain extent the idea that he has to drive um three plus hours um uh three plus hours because uh Riyadh is uh has a lot of traffic so he has he has a long commute um so that hasn't <laughs> been that was one of the things that he wasn't happy with but but I think I I do think at some point you know this idea that my question for Mr. Laporte is are you paying for your car or is the club paying for your car? I mean it doesn't matter you still gotta drive it whether you pay for the car or not you still gotta sit hey <laughs> oh man breaking news what what is it I'll, I'll say this for later i'll say this for later okay all right I'll be my so, fair play of the week. but yeah so um so yeah so that, i just think it's interesting because we did it something we we recently talked about um with some of the players not not being super happy over there um all right well let's move on to the the player of the match um my player of the match uh is going to go out to brighton uh, Brighton, Brighton and Hove Albion, just Brighton or Brighton and Hove Albion, Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, <laughs> go Gales. <laughs> um, uh, you like the Go Gales one, right? Yeah, 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 that sounds good. Um, signed, um, one of the most, um, dynamic and promising players, I think, uh, in Argentinian soccer, and one of the, the, I think. Really, a player that that came out, you know, he he debuted at the age of like seventeen for Boca Juniors, and now he's eighteen years old. Um, he debuted in a match where the majority of the team couldn't play because they had were stopped in Brazil and they had to like COVID quarantine, so they weren't allowed to play the regular league match. So they had to play with all the reserves, and he started as a left back, um, and basically was has been outstanding. Uh, he had a brief period brief period of time where he was hurt but then he was back and uh he's gonna be actually starting for as a left back uh for argentina today in the uh olympic qualifier in the comable olympic qualifiers that start today or they started yesterday but argentina plays today um so yeah uh valentine valentine barco uh signed for for brighton hove albion um so I think they got him for a little bit of a Man, you're, you're hyping this up. He better be better than McAllister. I mean, as a left back, listen, I'm, I'm just going to give you a little teaser. And you might like this, you, hype, you might not. You hype this man up. You hype he, this man up. In a Copa Libertadores, in a Copa Libertadores, like semifinal, this guy grabbed the ball and stood on top of it in the middle of the game. Like, stood on top of the ball. He got two-footed afterwards. No, he didn't. He got past him, man. He's out there and he's small. Small little guy. No, he's he's good. I like him a lot. Um, so yeah, so that's my player of the match. Who's yours? Player of the match. Man of the match. Gonna be uh Mr. Alex Carrington. Alex um, Carrington, who I actually heard from this week. Text him right now. Um we put together a DFA club night. Um, you know, I was not gonna say I was a little hesitant, just you know, with with DFA where we are located in the state and um, just the dates they had available, 
Um, we picked a Wednesday game and we were a little hesitant. Obviously, a lot of our families are from like the Lewis, Georgetown area. So it's kind of a drive on a Wednesday night. We're talking about kids getting home from school, having to drive to Philly for a game. Um, so we put this out. I want to say we put this out on Wednesday. We put the, sent the link out. It doesn't matter, Wednesday or Thursday. And he texted me. He's like, dude, I can't believe you, you, um, should have never doubted you, man. Like, <laughs> that's a good thing. I sold 74 tickets in one night. Look at you. Texting him right now. He's like, any guess on how much you bought so far? I'm like, you know, it's Sunday. This was, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, like maybe 40 people, right? Now, nah, dude, we're at 150. Wow. So shout out to shout out to Alex. Um, if you don't know, you're following the union. Um, tickets already went out on sale, but you want to get those quick because they're selling out for everything. Um, yeah. he was like, dude, even these like Wednesday games are gonna sell out because I mean it's just a high demand um for tickets because of the success they're having. Um and don't even and don't even think about buying a messy game ticket because they got those under padlocks. That link doesn't work. Well, rumor has it is what? he's supposed to be on national team duty when they come and play Philly. June fifteenth. Oh, because of the Copa America. Oh, I never I didn't think about that. Copa America is June twentieth, so it would be like the match right before. Well, does it start the twentieth? So they're gonna be in training, right? Um, depending on when teams let him out, yeah, depends on yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's gonna be yeah. massive. But you could hey, but the same time you can still go see Suarez Busquets and Jordi Alba. Yeah, because yeah, that's Suarez. Well, no, Suarez might get called up for the Uruguay national team. All right, we well, can still see Busquets and Jordi Alba. They ain't going nowhere. Yeah, they're well, they wouldn't be playing the well. They, I don't think they'd be called up for the Euros either. They got they got a Rodri and they got a dude named Rodri and a dude named uh, Alex Balde. Where you where you could see them? Where you could see them if they have a good start of the season? Is you could see them in the Olympics. Who's that? In theory, Sergio uh, Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba because the for the Olympics it's over thirty players you can take three. Yeah, I mean that's a good that's a good. Uh, Especially with the Euro, with the Euros going on, like it'll really depend on what what Spain wants to do and who they want to. I don't even know if Spain's in the Olympics or not. We need to look at that. That'll be an episode. For yeah, us. but I think for well, since we're talking about the Olympics, the U.S. dude, they got to hammer. I think they really got to hammer down this Olympic squad and make it a really true. And, and it's obviously with the club situation with players getting released, it gets a little tricky. But they need to find some dogs. Um, obviously, some coaches are. Some coaches are better with saying, hey, go take this experience. Like, I know Jim Curtin's obviously told his players, hey, go take advantage of the experience. Go ahead. We'll release you. We'll, we'll start. You well, know, and the thing we'll is, tread water you also got to think about the fact that if so for for the Olympics, if if you're if you play in the Copa America, the the MLS isn't stopping. Yeah, they stop it for League's Cup. <laughs> So yeah, they're stopping for League's Cup, but that would be right around the time of the Olympics. The Olympics, because the Olympics start pretty much a day, actually two days before the Copa America final. So it depends. Well, the the, the the full Olympics games, and then wherever soccer starts within that, which they it starts pretty early. I think they, soccer they, starts before the official ceremony starts. Oh, so the the day, so the official days. Uh, July 11th. So, yeah, there's there's some like 
Like I know soccer is one of those ones that they start ahead of time just because you need that re- like well, you you know, need those two or three time. days. Yeah. Yeah, you need those two or three days rest. Yeah. So all right. Well, um, that definitely be interesting. Well, I got a yeah. uh, player or the um, on this day in soccer history, January 21st. Uh, January 21st, 19, um, 1968. There it is. Uh, Stanley Steamer. The Estadio Santa Cruz, um, was, uh, was opened in Brazil. Uh, here's why I bring this up. So the Estadio Santa Cruz was opened in 1968. Uh, and it was an interesting match because obviously all all soccer stadiums have an opening match as for their opening. You know they open the stadium and they have a match. So this is the this is the home of Botafogo. Um, so Botafogo wanted to bring in somebody to play. Well, they decided to bring Romania. 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 Um, yeah. So Romania was was brought in. Um, to to play against um against Botafogo uh and uh Romania lost uh 6 to 2 um I brought I bring this up because Inter Miami played El Salvador the other day to a 0-0 tie yeah, and the whole and the whole country showed up yeah it was it was well actually it wasn't even that it wasn't 100% full but it was there was a lot of people there there was some uh, snow there was some uh, snow and and Impacting some travel in El Salvador. Yeah, uh, um, got some of them cold, cold winds. So yeah, so uh, January twenty first, nineteen sixty eight. Um, the Estadio Santa Cruz opened up. Capacity of twenty nine thousand people. Twenty nine thousand. Twenty nine thousand. Well, since we're on the topic of Brazil, Union are playing Flamengo right now, and are losing one nothing in a preseason friendly. And Flamengo's a good team, man. Well, they're also not on a world tour like Inter Miami, who's traveling twenty four thousand miles in the preseason. Yeah, it's a lot of miles. David Beckham knows what he's doing as far as marketing is concerned. I tell you that. David Beckham is over there getting his frequent flyer miles, boy. Yeah, David <laughs> you know Beckham asked for that frequent flyer number. <laughs> David Beckham is David Beckham is taking advantage of the fact that he's got now four world class. Um, Names, Barcelona players. Um, yeah, and he's taking that on the he's taking that show on the road. Um, all right, the Dan Simmons Fair Play of the Week. Boys uh, are back in town. <laughs> my my Fair Play of the Week goes out to um Mike Mikeman. Uh, I I alluded to this earlier when we were interviewing Nathan, but um Mike Mikeman, uh AC Milan goalkeeper, uh today actually uh, briefly left the pitch against Udinese. Uh, because of racist chants um, by by the Udinese fans, uh, and, and at some point it needs to stop. I'm glad he he decided to leave. He came back later on, and and they finished the match. But when he when he just when he told the referee that he was leaving, um, well, well, first he told the referee, and the referee kind of dismissed it, and then he told the referee that he was like, I right, I'm out, like I'm I'm done with this, and then his teammates followed, which is which is good. Um, um, when they came back, well, it's also it. happened in the uh, Sheffield. Dave Sheffield Wednesday, Wednesday versus Coventry City game too. Same, same. Did, yeah. Yeah. So at some point, it just needs to stop. 
it needs yeah. to stop. People either need to be banned or clubs need to be fined. So that way clubs uh, take the the appropriate action. So it makes sure they make sure it doesn't happen again. So Yeah, or hit them where it hurts in their pockets, man, and fine them and then tell them they got to play without fans. Yeah. Yeah, that too. Because then you got then you got to pay and you can't even get any more money in because no one's at the game. Yeah. So Ooh. um all right, who's your who's your mine's your... gonna go out to select sport, man. They put out a nice um breast cancer awareness soccer ball. About six of them probably gonna go back and complete the set, buy another six. Um, but they donate uh two dollars every uh ball to the breast cancer foundation. Great. I should say a breast cancer foundation. I'm not really sure which one it is. I got to go back and look. That's awesome. But um, yeah, it's good cause and good quality soccer ball too. I like the quality of the ball. Like it's, it'd be easy to just say, Hey, here's a breast cancer awareness ball. And it'd be like a terrible quality ball, but it's like something that you would, something you would pull out anytime. Yeah, for sure. Um, So like, so like it makes good soccer balls. Um, No, I mean, they usually do. So, uh, well, now we got to pump them up. This one stayed inflated for a couple of days, so I haven't good. had to pump it up. That's good. Every before every session, so or uh, I haven't had any sessions to play with it, but you, you know the vibes. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining us this week, and remember, always receive the ball on your front foot.